Hi, everybody. Uh, we're back. It's New Year, New Us. Work some stuff out. Um, whatever, whatever. Uh, I'm Lindsay. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Hi. Ryan. I use he, him pronouns. And this is You, the Devil, in D&D, where we talk about the satanic panic and all of the stuff surrounding it and how it affects us today. So anyway, in this new episode, this is going to be definitely two parts um where we talk about the book that started it all mm. the one the only michelle remembers yeah. because yeah it's like considered the starting point for good reasons our patient zero if you want to put it that yeah. way i mean everybody points to it as like being the start of the satanic panic and it's definitely the thing that got it popularized so there's a lot of um there's a lot of podcasts that have covered Michelle Remembers. I really recommend uh You're Wrong About's five part like play by play of Michelle Remembers. And um Conspirituality did three episodes about it, looking more into like the symbolism and the Catholic side of all that sort of stuff which is cool and all that. And there's, as I said, a lot of other podcasts that have covered it. Um, we're going to take a slightly different tack with it because like there's a, there's a few points that kind of jumped out to me that I think have not really been covered when it comes to like this, how the book was constructed. Some things that I think need to be expanded on and will probably be talked about in the future in a series about Africa diaspora religions and how that all got demonized. Like, voodoo ain't evil. <laughs> it's perfectly fine, guys. Yeah. I've seen too much just, movies. Yeah, it's more just about knowing what the fuck you're doing. Like any... Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to be focusing a bit more on some of the stuff that gets brought up in Michelle remembers regarding stuff like um, pastor's time in Nigeria, which I think is a lot more important than people give it credit for. And just some other stuff. We're going to talk about Victoria and yada, yada, yada. And then the next episode, we're going to focus on like both the sort of books that were coming out before Michelle remembers that I think are really important to kind of building the hype to it. And, like, why those books didn't succeed where Michelle Remembers did. And we're also going to talk about the effects of the 24-hour news cycle and uh, daytime talk shows. Because uh, Oprah was a big <laughs> satanic panic proponent. And I think that's a very important part of the puzzle here. And uh, I just want just, to just get this out of the way. Uh, fuck Ted Turner. <laughs> He's still alive, right? Oh, he's still alive and kicking. I think he's in his 80s or now. He he could die anytime yeah. now. Fuck him. Fuck yeah. him. He started everything went wrong on <laughs> I'm telling you, Doomsday started June 1st, 1980. And you'll <laughs> you'll figure out why later. I'll get into it. <laughs> That's going to be a mostly Ryan episode. <laughs> Um, anyway, so, like any good story, we gotta start 
at the beginning, and there was darkness. Basically, basically, <laughs> we're going to talk about, as I said, Michelle remembers uh, some of the sources we used as. I mentioned the aforementioned uh, You're Wrong About podcasts because of your duality. I highly recommend them. Uh, there was a really great article by Canadian journalist Jen Gerson called uh, Michelle Remembers the Destructive Conspiracy Theory that Victoria Unleashed Upon the World. Uh, she wrote that for Capital Daily. Uh, Ed Cara wrote for the Pacific Standard an article called The Most Dangerous Idea in Mental Health. And we also use sources from the Gray Faction, which is a project of the Satanic Temple uh, dedicated to fighting against pseudoscience and conspiracy theories, uh, especially regarded, regarding the discredited psychological techniques, such as recovered memory therapy and uh, facilitated communication. So anyway, I would say that the central protagonist of Michelle Remembers is not the eponymous michelle smith but one lawrence pastor and like anything terrible in canada he came from edmonton there's nothing good that comes from from. yeah all bad bad things come from edmonton uh he was born april 30th 1936 to stanley and helen pastor and was raised a pretty conservative catholic uh he attended University of Alberta Medical School, graduating in 1961 with his MD. Then he went to Liverpool, to to the University of Liverpool in 1962 to get a diploma in tropical medicine. Then sometime in the mid-60s, he seems to have served as the doctor on a Catholic mission in Nigeria, hence the tropical medicine diploma. Um, And then he gets back to Canada and attends McGill University in 1968 with a specialist certificate in psychiatry and a diploma in psychological medicine. So to nip a conspiratorial uh, bud, uh, he was probably never taught at any point by uh, Donald Moon Cameron. He was a very infamous psychologist uh, associated with the MKUltra program. I if memory serves me right, Cameron was dead by 1967. So, and like his whole thing had been kiboshed by like 66. So anyway, moving on. Um, Pastor was the founder and president of the Anawin Companion Society. He was a fellow of Canada's Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, a member of the American a psychiatric association, the chairman of the mental health committee of the health planning council for British Columbia, member of staff at Royal Jubilee hospital and member of staff for Victoria general hospital. So as I said, likely between his time in Liverpool and when he went to McGill pastor spent was on a mission in Nigeria, um, which in the book, he usually just refers to my time in Africa or my time my in time. West Africa. My, my time abroad <laughs> in Africa. Yeah, it is. Vi- he talks about it in such a colonialist manner. It is oh. so uncomfortable. There, Do we want something. to talk about Nigeria right now? <laughs> that, you know what? You're Collins. Yeah, because I did move it to a later part after we did the summary, but like, the summary is that, like, Pazder. Uh, started being the psychologist to Michelle Smith in 1973 to deal with depression. And then uh, she gets married to a guy named Doug. Um, He 
they were trying to have a baby. She was having miscarriages. She got really depressed. Also, one of her miscarriages was really bad, and she wound up in the hospital. Um, she and Pastor get back together as psychologists and patients. And the nightmare started, and Pastor is like, Satanist! Think about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, you know what? We'll talk about Nigeria because, oh boy, is. <laughs> It was uncomfortable the amount of times he brought up, oh, that time in West Africa where the, I heard about the leopard children. Where the fuck you talking about, bro? Those places have names. <laughs> I know. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. So anyway, we're going to do a big old thing about Nigeria. So um, its capital is Abuja. And its largest city is Lagos. It is also the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Its official language is English, and the nat- and the nationally recognized languages are Hausa, Yoruba, and Igbo. The country is also home to over 525 other languages. The main ethnic groups are Hausa, Yoruba, Igbo, Fulani, Ibibio, Tiv, Kanuri, Ija, and another 363 other ethnic and tribal groups. Nigeria gained independence from the British Empire on October 1st, 1960, was federated in 1963, and adopted its current, its current constitution in, on May 29th, 1999. It has a total area of, 9, of 923,769 square kilometers, making it the 31st largest country on Earth, with a population of 225,800,000 um 225,082,083 people uh humans have been living in Nigeria for as early as 6000 BCE and part of a fossilized human skull was found in the Iwo Aliro cave in the uh, Ondo state of Yoruba of Yoruba land and is believed to be around 13,000 years old uh one of the earliest cultures in Nigeria was the Nok culture that thrived on the Jos Jos Plateau between 1500 BCE and 200 CE. They were known for their life-size terracotta statues and sophisticated ironsmithing. Um, basically, it, the evidence seems to show that West Africa skipped the Bronze Age, um, either due to like a lack of access of copper or something. But they had like this really sophisticated ironsmithing techniques, and iron is a lot. It's a more difficult uh, metal to work with. So, yeah, they're super cool. Mm. I love ancient history. Uh, <laughs> some really? believed that... Hmm? Really? <laughs> Miss <Yeah>. Archivist? <laughs> Tis my job. So some have hy- hypothesized an East African or uh, Sub-Saharan origin of West African ironsmithing, but the evidence tends to point towards a contemporary, sometimes to be contemporary, sometimes predating timeline, and that the technology was likely indigenous. In the modern period, one of Nigeria's largest polities was the Oyo Empire, which formed in 13th century CE and achieved its greatest height between 1608 and 1800. Other great states of the period include the Songhai Empire, which dominated the Sahel between 1500 and 1600, and or the 15th and 16th century, covering what's now Mali, Niger, Nigeria, Benin, Senegal, Burkina Faso, 
Mauritania, southern Algeria, and Guinea-Bissau. At its peak, the Songhai city of Timbuktu became a central, became a thriving cultural and commercial center, with Arab, Italian, and Jewish mer- Jewish merchants gather, gathered, gathering for trade. Um, also, apparently, when they sing also- cats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fucking aristocrats! <laughs> <laughs> I shall send them to Timbuktu. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, Timbuktu was also the center of a revival of Islamic scholarship that took place at its university. Both empires were known for their wealth, sophistication, and powerful cavalry. But the good times didn't last because colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade! Um, which led to a lot of Africa diaspora religions who can trace their lineages back to Yoruba and Igbo people, such as Santeria, Haitian Voodoo, Voodoo, Root Work, and Louisiana Voodoo. So following the Napoleonic Wars, the British Empire started expanding its presence in West Africa. This had come after years of being involved in the slave trade, then establishing the Sierra Leone colony in 1787 for free loyalist and slave people. Because, as it turns out, when, um... <laughs> from a certain perspective, the, uh... Continental forces were not the good guys. The, you know, the leaders of the American Revolution, especially the ones who owned slaves and weren't intending on ever freeing them. Whereas Britain had a pretty humming abolitionist movement, and there was just like the promise of like, hey, if you serve with us, black and slave people, you can be free, and we'll send you to Sierra Leone or Nova Scotia. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that yeah. all happened. Um, and then uh, Britain abolished slavery between 1807 and 1830. Uh, for most of the early 19th century, the European presence was dominated by missionaries, mostly Church of England, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Catholics, with some, and more recently, uh, evangelical and Pentecostal missionaries have been going to Nigeria. Europeans also came for the palm oil, for soap, and lubrication before the creation of petroleum-based products. The game, cha- the major game changer was quinine, a medication used to fight malaria, which was often mixed with gin and tonic water to make it easier to swallow. This allowed Europeans to penetrate further into Africa, because for a long time, Europeans could not handle the diseases and were stuck to the coast. Um... So in 1851, the Lagos colony was founded under Lord Palmerston to better enforce British anti-slavery laws because there was still slavery both in the U.S. and uh, a big importer of slaves was Brazil until the 1880s. Um, Then oil was found. Along with the discovery of diamonds in South Africa, the growing strategic rivalry between between Britain, France, Germany, and Italy. Germany and Italy were just starting to get into the colonial game. So at the Berlin Conference of 1884, Britain created the Niger Niger Coast Protectorate along with other colonies. Then in the 1890s, Britain fully conquered Nigeria and would be and would rule from the from the colonial office in Whitehall. A Nigerian national movement would emerge in 1910 and become galvanized by World War II. Now, after gaining independence, Nigeria swiftly got rid of the monarchy in 1963, and then ethnic and religious tensions were high, 
and this results and the results of the 1965 national elections were highly contested. So on January 15th, 1966, a group of army officers called the Young Majors, mostly, who were mostly made up of southeastern Igbos, overthrew the Northern People's Council Nigerian National Democratic Party government and assassinated the prime minister and the premiers of the northern and western western regions, which caused a civil war that lasted until 1970. So that's the Nigeria Lawrence Pazder, young Catholic Edmontonian doctor, is rocking into for this Catholic missionary mission work. And hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I was talking about this little thing with my boss the other day, and she mentioned how like when you're doing anthropology, anthropological work especially doing anthropological uh, field work um the first two years are usually a wash because most people are just bullshitting you the entire time because like when you think about it like you're the new white person nobody knows you nobody trusts you why would they tell you anything also for good reason there's a lot of there's a lot of like actual good reasons but also like Part of it too is like, heh, let's see if we let's see what we can get this dipshit to believe. <laughs> this utter maroon, this ninkow poop. And given the context of Lawrence Pastor and like what he would later go on to do, I think he's one of those people who believed a lot of stuff at face value. Very easy mark. Oh, he is such a mark. So this is where I talk about West African secret societies. Um, and as I said, there's quite a few references to Pastor's time in Nigeria, but when he does bring it up, uh, it's in a very colonial fashion. Like on page 29, he says, quote, Yoruba tribe in Nigeria, among others, use cola bean pods in a fashion similar to the way people, way these people appear to use the sticks to predict stuff yada 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 uh that was in reference to some of the abuses that michelle smith alleged to have suffered um at the start of chapter 11 pastor writes in africa he had encountered beliefs and practices that had he not observed them directly he could not have believed could exist within humanity sacrifices cannibalism rituals of every sort that responded to inconceivable inconceivably complex psychological or mystical requirements and in his own work as a psychiatrist he occasionally had patients with dark drives and fears and desires that if encouraged by a person similarly afflicted could surely have been manifested in bizarreness and cruelty on this order and i do not believe for a second he saw any fucking religious shit at all especially not anything revolving around cannibalism he is such a fucking nerd a prim little nerd from Edmonton? Nah, nah. He was hearing shit. You know where he probably got most of his uh, stories from? Like, if it wasn't, if he wasn't hearing bullshit from the locals, he was hearing it from, like, I don't know, the mercenaries that were hired to guard this Catholic mission. That or in the hotel room uh, with yeah. some other easy marks that, oh, I heard this. Did you hear this uh, thing that uh, the, the locals told me? Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's I, It was, like, probably a mixture of that and, like, the cynical, like, West Africa hands who had been there for fucking years and just, like, hate everything. 
Because, like, this is Smoke Pit story stuff. Like, yeah. I could see some South African mercenaries being like, oh, yeah, did you hear about what those um, savages do out in the bush <clears throat> while they're smoking their... I do not know what fucking accent I did. <laughs> On accent? <laughs> I don't know what most South Africans sound like. Anyway, yeah. It... Like, I can see those two scenarios, and he just believes both. So yeah, there's more, like... They may have been trying to pass on symbolically the spirit of that person. In West Africa, in a number of regions, it was considered important to eat the flesh of another person. In the Christian Holy Communion, there was great emphasis on consuming the body and blood of Christ. Perhaps this business of the ashes had some relation to that in a contrary sort of way. Um, and here's what tipped me off to do some research. So he says, um, in a footnote after Michelle Smith describes spending time in a cage, Pazder wrote, hearing about the cage, Dr. Pazder was reminded of the dreaded Ekpi Society of West Africa. Kidnapped children were raised by its members in small, low cages like animals. These leopard children could not stand but ran on, on, on all fours. Their teeth were filed to points, and they were used as assassins. Of course, Dr. Pazer never told Michelle about the correspondences he sometimes saw between her experiences and the things he had studied. Does he not realize that it is incredibly impossible for humans to run on all fours? Like, we lost that ability God knows how long ago. Soon as we came down from the fucking trees. What as soon as a Homo sapien saw a rock, it was like, hmm. Smash rock into a uh, pear to open pear. Hmm. Rock and stick. We we totally like, forgot uh, how to run yeah. around on the forehead on on feet hands. Yeah, we, we're built to be bipedals bipedal creatures like our whole like the most natural style of hunting for us is pursuit hunting where we just like chase <laughs> chase a gazelle until it collapses <laughs> who are the fucking terminators of the serengeti <laughs> imagine being a fucking zebra and you just see a, a bunch of dudes running at you like it's in get out <laughs> you're just like <laughs> <laughs> it's like you thought the lions were bad the fuck is that <laughs> you just get fucking tired <laughs> these just guys keep going. don't <laughs> <laughs> fuck everything about us is designed for the style of hunting like our earth's eyesight is in the way our brains recognize patterns it's all meant to pick out that one like deer in the woods. <laughs> you know, you know what it is. I bet animals think that we're cryptids. Fish definitely do. They're like, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> it came from the sky. <laughs> like we've done a lot of fishing and we've tossed back our fair share. I bet there's a few. <laughs> Like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Bro, I was up there. 
I saw Jim up there. They cut his throat, dude. They cut his throat. <laughs> they're going to eat him. And then they're going to eat me. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah. Pastor's a fucking idiot. Anyway. Um... So, the mention of the XP people, something I could actually start figuring out, okay, what the fuck is he talking about? So, the XP Society um, is a secret society that was found among the Afik people of southern Nigeria and western Cameroon. The Afik language is part of the Benui Congo subfamily of the Niger Congo language group. Uh, they emerged as a polity in the 19th century and centered around the city of Calabar which was a major center of the transatlantic slave trade and is currently the center of Nigeria's oil industry. The Afik are a melting pot group and have members who are also of, um, like there's Sierra Leoneans, Lebanese people, Cameroonians, and Jamaicans uh, who uh, can claim matrilineal descent from the Afik people and they are considered Afik. Um, the Ekpi itself is also called the Megbi or Egbo, which means leopard in Ikoi and is derived from an Abibio word of the same meaning. And it's mostly associated with the Afik, but is also practiced by the Bahumomo, Abibio, Uran, and Oran, and has uh, become a diaspora of religion, uh, especially in Cuba and Brazil. And we'll talk about how it evolved in Cuba a bit later um the ekp is um ekp itself is a mysterious spirit who is supposed to live in the jungle and it and uh, it presides over the ceremonies of the society the members of the ekp society act as messengers for the ancestors or econ and the economics of the society is based on paying tribute to the village ancestors and it's also male only, and boys are initiated upon puberty. Members are required to take an oath of secrecy and pay fees for entrance. There are seven to nine, nine grades, each of which require new initiation rituals, fees, and secrecy oaths if necessary. Which, what does it sound like to you, Ryan? Sounds like organized religion to me. Well, to me... <laughs> It sounded a lot like the Masons. Oh, yeah, them too. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I forgot about the Masons. Yeah. Um, we'll do a whole series on the Masons, but yeah, I think given that the Afi people also like arose as a group in the 19th century and you already had Europeans in the area for a while, um, like the Mason, uh, the Freemasons spread through colonization. Because it was a really great way to, like, establish and maintain connections with other people. And, like, say you're some officer with the East India Company and you die, like, somewhere. You die out in Delhi. But, like, all of, all of your family's back in England. Like, if you're a part of the Masons and you uh, have somebody, you're friends with somebody who's also a Mason, like, you can basically guarantee that 
your family's going to get your stuff and know that you've died, like, way out on the other side of the world. And this is really important in the early 19th century because, like, communication fucking sucks. Yeah. So, um, I, th- I would not be surprised if, uh, the Epke Society kind of emerged from contact with European Masons. Like, just, like, the general idea of how it's done, but also, like, from what I understand, secret societies are a very important part of West African religions. Um, oh, I think it was the Dogon. They have a secret society of blacksmiths because the ability to make iron tools and, like, to use iron was a protected skill. Um, Behind the Bastards is doing a series on the Illuminati, and the actual history of the Illuminati, and how it's influenced conspiracy culture. Um, but one of the first things that Robert Evans talked about was um, on in California, there was a First Nations people who had a secret society based around people who could build canoes. And this is a really important technology that they had, and a highly technical skill. And the secret society allowed for social mobility. Um, it gave social status. And yeah, it was. It sort of helped create a hierarchy, but also, like, it was an important way. It was an important way to transmit this knowledge. So, anyway, back to the EKP. Uh, the EKP are also involved in politics and law enforcement. If someone is wronged, you go. If you're wronged, you go to the EKP. You could beat their drum or blow horn, and they will come and deal with your problem. Uh, they also perform police duties in mass. And um, formerly, the society earned a bad reputation due to what the British viewed as barbarous customs that were intermingled with its rights. Um, and yeah, it. <sighs> I would not be surprised if there was just, like, rumors that sprung up about what the Epke would do if you got on the wrong side of them. Much like, kind of, what happened to the Masons in North America for a while. There was a lot of anti- There was straight up an anti-Masonic party that got seats in the U.S. government back in the 1800s. Goddamn. Yeah. So- Again, this is this is just sounding so much like anti-Masonic stuff, but like a West African version. Um, so, as for the leopard children thing, where I think Pastor got that was um, there's an actual leopard society that originates from Sierra Leone. And it's believed that members of the society could transform into leopards through the use of witchcraft. Um... The first reference in English was by was in George Banbury's Sierra Leone or The White Man's Grave from 1888. And it sounded like such moral panic bullshit. Um, the Leopard Society seemed to have been active uh, during the early to mid-19th century. It spread out of Liberia to the out to Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, and Nigeria and became known as the Mephoric the Faroekpi to the Afik in Calabar. Um, members would dress in leopard skins. <clears throat> they were said to waylay travelers with sharp claw- claw-like weapons in the form of leopard's claws and teeth. Uh, victims' flesh would be 
cut from their bodies and distributed to members of the secret society. Uh, according to their beliefs, the, the ritual cannibalism would strengthen both members of the secret society as well as the, their entire tribe. Again, we only have like colonial testimonies to go with. And the Leopard Society seemed to have kind of died out by the mid-20th century. So, like, there's probably nobody alive who actually had first-hand encounters with uh, the Leopard Society. Again, I'm thinking Pazder was fed a lot of horseshit. Also, you know, this, this is kind of what happens when uh, you're not taught uh stories about you know the local indigenous population and there's probably a good chance these are just like you know things that were you know legends mythos yeah just like the herb the local urban legends like the things that he don't go outside at night night little bobby and stories told by elders and stuff like 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 dude we have such a robust indigenous population here in Canada. Are you telling me you yeah. never fucking heard a story uh, that's that was taught that was told to you about like how someone like turned into a raven and then flew to the moon and brought it down and that's how we got the ocean? <laughs> like, I mean, we grew up on the west coast, so we got a lot of raven stories. We we got a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, ravens are like hella cool out out mm. of the west coast. Yeah, they're they're really cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then, given that Pastor was on mission in Nigeria, he likely heard rumors about the Ekpi and Leopard Societies and combined them, combined the two into like this Heart of Darkness style nightmare that later fed into uh, Michelle Smith's own thing that we're going to talk about right away. <laughs> but I think... Knowing Pastor's background leading up to 1976, we should talk about Michelle Smith. She is yeah. one complicated gal. So, mm-hmm. Michelle Proby Smith Pastor, I don't know what her full name is. I'm just going by all of her different last names. Uh, she was born sometime around 1950 in Victoria, BC, to Jack and Virginia Proby. They were renamed Eric and Jessica Harding in the book. Um, her father was stated to, in the book, to be about a decade older than Virginia. Um, he was a successful businessman, but also, like, a drunk. Um, the thing to keep in mind is that Smith's parents were of the World War II generation, and, like, I, I don't know what their service records was. I don't even know if either of them served, because Jack seems to have been old enough that he might not have seen any combat, but... Like, if he did, it's like, his alcoholism could have been something related to wartime experience. It could not. It could just be, like, he's a 1950s dad. Um, Virginia is stated to have come from Vancouver. Her father, who was called Cyrus Gilbert in the book, was stated to have been a younger son from a prominent English family. And I think it's it kind of should be expanded on a little. Um, <laughs> this is where being Canadian and being into history is very useful. So if you know anything about Canadian history, 
And if you've read older Canadian literature, especially stuff that's set in like Western Canada, probably more stuff set on the prairies than out in BC. Um, but you encountered this character archetype called the Remittance Man. Um, and these are usually the younger sons of prominent British families, usually aristocratic, but also like upper middle class, because like Britain has practiced primogenitor, male preferred primogenitor. So the eldest son gets basically everything, especially if the family's estate is entailed, which means like everything collectively goes to the eldest son and everybody else is shit out of luck. Um, now, most of the time, the Romans man was sent to Canada or Australia or New Zealand or the U.S. to do some work, make his fortune, and not be an embarrassment to the family. Um, the nice version, as be, to put it succinctly, the Romans man was sent to Canada to either make his fortune or die. Um... And it seems that Gilbert was a romance man made good. Um, he was also an apparently overbearing asshole. And Virginia was a rather, rather rebellious young woman and had a divorce under, under her belt by the time she married Jack. So interesting times. And this is, again, like before No Faults Divorce and all that other stuff that we seem to take for gran granted now. Um... And there was a lot of stigma regarding that sort of this sort of situation that's happening. So anyway, Smith was born to this very unhappy ha household. As I said, her dad's a drunk uh, who beat her mom. And her mom alternates between being very affectionate and being very frigid and seemingly without warning. I think a lot of that has to do with like the presence of the dad being at home. Because apparently the dad would just like disappear for days on end. And mm. it was, um, it lightened the mood, apparently. <laughs> as is want to happen in these situations. Um, also, as uh, Smith was not an only child as she portrays herself in the book. In the book, she does not mention that she was the middle of two sisters, of three children. Specifically three daughters. What's stated in the book is that her parents had wanted a boy. And had planned on naming this boy Michael, but then switched to Michelle when she was born. So if that's true, I think that's kind of setting up an interesting situation for her feeling very unwanted. Um, again, this is a lot of analysis that's coming from You're Wrong About. Uh, Sarah Marshall did a really great breakdown of like what she thinks was going on in Michelle's mind. That's probably a lot more closer to the mm. truth than <laughs> being abused by a satanic cult in Oak Bay. Um, yeah. So apparently Smith's birth was difficult and Virginia seems to have suffered from postpartum depression. According to Smith, she spent the first six months of her life living with her grandparents. Um, her dad, as I said, would disappear from time to time and mom was seemingly happier during this period. Um, According to the book, Smith wasn't brought up religiously, but in, but her dad gave an interview to the Mail on Sunday in 1990 and said that Virginia took took the daughters to church every Sunday and they were confirmed Christians. Now, we don't know what 
fucking denomination they belong to. And I don't want to accidentally uh, dox the people who are living in Michelle's childhood home, but I did some Google Maps trying to figure out, okay, what what's the likely religious situation that's going on here? Because Michelle is weirdly familiar with a lot of Catholic stuff. Um, like, especially if she's not familiar at all, or if she wasn't raised Catholic. But, like, um, when I was doing my research, I found that Michelle was in... When I say walking distance, I mean my sort of walking distance. Which, which is... is about 100 square kilometers, <laughs> uh, by the way, yeah. listeners. <laughs> this lady could walk for miles. <laughs> I am a pretty good walker. Uh, I was bored a lot in, in uh, Ottawa, so I once walked from like downtown to Kanata and back. Um so anyway, the closest churches to Smith's childhood home uh were and still are St. Philip's Anglican Church, uh which was a fairly new church at the time. Uh the Roman Catholic St. Patrick's Parish and Hope Evangelical Lutheran Church. Uh, given her familiarity with Catholic culture and attending a Catholic boarding school in Vancouver, I'm inclined towards either like a Catholic or High Anglican upbringing. Uh, high Anglican here means like basically this is like when people talk about um, Catholicism without the Pope. This is basically Catholicism without the Pope. Um, I did look at the sites to try and gauge like what sort of places like Pope Evangelical and um the saint phillips were like and all i can say is um pope evangelical is probably more of a mainline lutheran church so pretty bog standard protestant stuff uh not a lot of ceremony and i doubt that they would have focused a whole lot about demons and the devil and all that sort of stuff like you find that with a lot of mainstream with a lot of mainline protestant churches there's a big de-emphasis on that sort of stuff like when we used to go to the united church i barely also like we stopped going when we were kids but i don't remember a whole lot of talk about that but also like the church that we went to (laughs) the the pastor there figured out that harry potter was a fucking christ metaphor from the first fucking book (laughs) gotta love a, a a priest who actually has a little bit of like literacy it could like a, a deduce little, media. A little literary analysis, and honestly, rolling is not that deep. It's fucking it's about as deep as a puddle. Yeah. So it's like pretty obvious there, Joanne. Um. Anyway, I'm yeah, just like I lean towards she either went to an Anglican church or a Catholic church. Um, and then like later on. So her mom dies when uh, Smith's 14, very suddenly from cancer. Um, It's brought up in the book that the ward she was put into when she had, like, that third really bad um, miscarriage was the same ward that her mother died in. Which, oh god. (laughs) Jesus. Like, nobody is caring about this woman's emotional state at all. Like, throughout this entire thing she is so passive and just like nobody cares 
Um, it's almost like these fucking like this psych, like she's supposed to be getting help, right? Like psychiatric help, and she's yeah, getting and- the worst you could ever imagine because <laughs> this is more like fuck. I feel so sorry for her in certain respects. Like, she did help perpetrate the the satanic panic, but, like, you actually read the book, and you're like, God, if you had an actual competent psychologist, Michelle, this could have all been avoided. None of this had to happen. Yeah. So, anyway, Dad, Dad abandons the family, and her grandparents take over raising her and her sisters, and, like, they get sent to a, a Catholic boarding school in Vancouver, which, again, raises a couple of weird flags for me. Like, the book states that Smith was exempted from religious classes in mass, which seems really unrealistic in nineteen in a 1960s Catholic boarding school. Like, she'd at least... You'd think that she would at least join in so that she wasn't, like, the odd person out. Like, there's a high incentive for her to get involved in all this. Um, also, like, there were other boarding schools that wouldn't have required her to leave Victoria. Um, <laughs> we'll yes. talk about this in a bit. We're, we're going to talk about like what our experiences growing up in the lower part of Vancouver Island was like. Because there's a huge class divide. But like, I Massive. looked up some of the... I looked up some of the boarding schools that she could have gone to in on Vancouver Island. Like, just in the Victoria area. And I went up a little bit further north. And, like, there was uh, Glenline Norfolk School, which at the time would have been Norfolk House School. Um, that was, and uh, St. Margaret's were both in Victoria. They're both non-denominational. So, like, there wouldn't have been an emphasis on religion at all. And the other school I looked at was Queen Margaret's, which is up in our former hometown, Duncan. Um which again, non-denominational. It is a Tony as fuck. <laughs> okay, we gotta talk about this. So Queen Margaret has an equestrian program. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Michelle Smith could have become a horse girl. <laughs> she could have been a horse girl, and she could she and all of her friends could have been walking around Podunk, Duncan, BC, with their nice. <laughs> uh uniforms, uniforms they, they're yeah they have the green uniforms they have the nice like green the uniforms. british style with the blazer and the skirt and the knee socks and they can walk by old ass fucked up <laughs> asbestos ridden cow high <laughs> my high school go thunderbirds <laughs> We could still whip their asses in all of the sports. <laughs> we had the best athletics program in the island. It's <laughs> really weird. Okay, our our hockey team sucked. Same with our football team. Our rugby team, though. Okay, it did help that like one of the coaches who was my gym teacher was like a coach for the for UVic, uh, for the UVic rugby team. And, yeah, like, his neck muscles were so developed, so overdeveloped, he could turn his head properly. (laughs) It's like a prerequisite for, like, any and all, like, gym teachers who, like, are, like, super athletic to also not have a neck because they all just fucking work out. (laughs) 
and wear the tiniest shorts in all weather. Tiniest. It's like, what's wrong with you? Do you not feel the cold? Like, yes, I know that this is British Columbia. This is Vancouver Island. It doesn't get that cold, but like, goddamn, are you not cold? Um, yeah. So, like, this is also the abuse that that Michelle Smith supposedly suffered at the hands of the satanic cult happened in Oak Bay, Victoria. So I I just gotta read the opening lines to like like how this fucking book describes Victoria because it is some wild ass shit. Um gotta scroll up. Okay. This is on page three. Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, is a jewel of a city, a tidy metropolis on the edge of the Pacific that is in its primness seems more English than Canadian. Baskets of flowers hang from its ornate lampposts. The parliament building is outlined with thousands of tiny lights at night, a conceit that would would have pleased the good queen for whom the city was named. Ocean-going yachts tied up and tie up in front of the ivy-covered Empress Hotel downtown. Schools of whales frolic offshore, and the air blowing Flowing in from the sea is fresh and crisp. Many Canadians consider Victoria a modern, modern garden of Eden. Not, not so far-fetched notion, if one recalls that there was a serpent in the garden of Eden. Uh, um. Hmm. So my boss, uh, he yeah. is from Victoria. He is from oh. Oak Bay. <laughs> he grew up during this time. Oh, <laughs> do tell. I uh, I I think he thinks it's a pretty nice place, but he wouldn't mm-hmm. call it a modern day Garden of Eden. <laughs> I know oh. Bushard Garden is like a nice place. It's nice to walk around. Oh yeah, it yeah, is. very very nice. Oh yeah, it's like, real plant. pretty. The roses are nice there. Very very nice roses. <laughs> Very, very pretty. Yeah. Uh, that's. Uh, uh, have you not been to like Milan or something? No, he spent all of his time in uh, Nigeria. Uh, only, only yeah. in Africa. He never visited anywhere else. <laughs> and there are some very nice places in Africa. I mean, I was looking at photos of Lagos, and Lagos is a very nice looking place. Oh yeah, yeah. Lagos is real cool. Um, yeah, Victoria. Like, it is a nice city. It is a pretty city, um, for the most part. I will say the part that we hung out in mostly because we're our dad is in the navy was Esquimalt, which like not that bad of a place, but like I can see why mom would never deign to live in a BMQ, like ever. No, no. <laughs> it's um oh boy, um and just in general, like we said this during the music episodes um military bases have a vibe <laughs> um i also did my uh my basic training in victoria when i was in the reserves on a bad idea and um yeah it was rainy and wet i was there in the spring and uh, i got yelled at a lot by a lot of french people 
<laughs> a lot of my instructors were from Quebec. Um, yeah, like Victoria is one of those places. Like, it's definitely very touristy, especially downtown. Um, the Empress Hotel is really nice. Uh, I really like, and I have a lot of nostalgia for the Royal BC Museum, but I understand why they're closing it down. For uh, basically, they have to build a new building. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, there was the whole um, issues with like how they got artifacts and how they're displaying them and colonialism, yada yada yada, all really important stuff. But also, like that building is not earthquake proof. Um, <laughs> yeah. For all the Garden of Eden talk, uh, one has to remember that uh, Victoria sits on the convergence of like three plates. Um. Yeah, this is Ring of Fire territory. Um, on a clear day, you can see Mount Baker, which is a volcano. Uh, one of these days, Mount Rainier is going to erupt, and uh, Victoria's blocked. Um, and then, like, it doesn't take long for you to find kind of the dingier parts of Victoria. Um, because, like, the thing about, like, Oak Bay, aside from, you know, being pretty... Um, and being where all those fucking gazelles I had to play soccer against Fuck! <laughs> I felt so bad for you every single time you had to go up there. And it was like, Jesus so I Christ. <laughs> I stand a grand total of five feet two inches. I stopped growing at 15, and I had to play soccer against these girls who were like, damn, you're six feet tall. At least from my perspective, they felt like they were six feet tall. <laughs> and there's little no me. Listen, they're still probably like 5'9", and that's huge. Yeah, that's huge. Um, but yeah, like there's a lot of parts of Victoria where it's pretty rough. Uh, there's, homeless, there's a homeless situation. And like not long after Michelle Remembers came out, uh, the Hells Angels arrived in on Vancouver Island. Now they must have set shop up in uh, Nanaimo, but even when I was doing, like, my basic training, we weren't given specific names, but we were told, like, there's a couple of bars in Victoria that you don't go, because those are Hell's Angels bars. Um, and, yeah, like, I remember it was probably, like, what, 9, 10? It was around the same time that Picton was arrested that there was a major bust on the Hell's Angels up in Nanaimo. And they recently got their old clubhouse back. So I guess they're having a bit of a revival. Mm. Um, and yeah, what the Hells Angels came heroin. Heroin is a big problem on the West Coast. Um, so going further north, let's, let's talk about Duncan. Because Duncan is kind of like the epitome of what it means to live in on the southern end of Vancouver Island. Because of that huge class divide. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about Queen Margaret's with its fucking equestrian program. And it is a girl's school up until, like, great... No, it starts being a girl's school at, like, the high school level. I think boys can attend up to, like, the middle school level. Um, yeah, I believe so. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, some of the other private schools in the area were Brentwood... Brentwood. Uh, <laughs> which had a rowing team. Right in Mill Bay. Mill Bay, yeah, right on. It was right on the water, too. 
Which yeah. is probably probably useful for having a <laughs> a rowing team. Um that was didn't you and dad you and dad were on the shared a lift with the guy who went to Brentwood, right? I think so. That sounds about right. Yeah, because I remember like hearing mom and dad talk about it and saying like the tuition for Brentwood was more than like tuition to university. Yeah. Which, yeah, when you pretty bog standard there. And the other big name private school was uh, Shawnigan Lake School, which is a boys school over in Shawnigan Lake, which is where uh, Michelle Smith and her husband, her first husband, had lived. And that is an Anglican school, or at least it was associated with the Anglican with the Anglican Church. And like, but particularly Queen Margaret's and Shawnigan Lake were modeled on like British boarding schools, like with the house system and the uniforms and just all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then like the. There was also like a couple of other schools that people would send their kids to um, the because basically what had happened uh, around this time, around the time that these events happened in the book, um, Duncan was a lot more of a logging town, um, but eventually it would become kind of like a bedroom community for people who worked in Victoria because uh, Victoria is hell of expensive to live in. Like I, I've seen the house that Michelle Smith grew up in. It's a little bungalow, but, like, it's in Oak Bay, so it's probably in the high, like, 900,000 range, if not close to a million dollars. Like, this girl grew up, like, not far from the Royal Victoria Yacht Club sort of area of town. Um, so, yeah, if you couldn't live in Victoria, you would live in places like um, Saanich until it became way too expensive. Langford, the Olympic game way too expensive. Langford is also uh, over by Royal Roads College, which for Marvel fans, uh, that was used as a set of Xavier Academy. Very cool. Very oh yeah, cool it's place. super cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you couldn't live in Saanich or Langford, then you would have you to just cross kept... Malahat. You kept, <laughs> you kept going north. You kept going north because they kept kicking you out. You you kept being priced out. So, like, the kids who lived at the southern end of the Cowichan Valley where we lived uh, went to Francis Kelsey School. And that's a public school, but that was the rich kid public school. It had the See, nice those, theater those program. <laughs> yeah, there's tears here. So, the rich kids... So many people wanted to send their kids to Francis Kelsey that they had to do a lottery system for people who were outside of, like, their, like, area that district, they took kind of their yeah. their district like it was still part of the same district it's just like uh the different high schools had like based zones on your, yeah different zones based on your postal code so if you lived outside of the francis kelsey zone you had to send your kids to cow high which okay having finished high school in regina i'm just gonna say this how high would have been as good as like Campbell Collegiate? Like wow, damn! It Cal High actually has like a really good theater program along with a really good athletic program. 
and it was also like the only high school that had like a really good shop program and um it's actually doing fairly well like they've teamed up what they did instead of getting rid of the middle school like or like integrating the middle school into the elementary school like they did here in regina way back in the day um they integrated the middle school with the high school and then the high school does a lot of work with um vancouver island university which is like a community college thing uh they do like accredited degrees and all that but they also do like a lot of uh, diploma work like for mechanics stuff and all that it's like campus regina yeah like campus regina like it's super cool and all that so it's actually doing fairly well it's just the building itself the building was (laughs) shit the building was like uh i guess for those of you who listen from regina it's like tom (laughs) yeah it's it's like tom and you know tom it has a unique shade like regina has a unique shade of gray to it tom is the like encapsulation of that unique shade of gray it doesn't help that the school colors are black white and like gray or silver where silver if they want to feel a little bit bougie about it but at the end of the day they're fucking gray yeah, Cowhive's colors were burgundy, blue, white, and silver, and we had the shittiest mascot. It was literally like a an eagle, like a sewn eagle head, kind of looking like Sam the Eagle, sewn onto a ratty burgundy shirt. That's supposed to be the Thunderbird. <laughs> the Thunderbird. Yep. <laughs> At least Noel had the decency of getting like a proper getting a suit. proper thing. Yeah, yeah, KC. He was a, he was a Wolverine. He was kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> I love Cowhide, but also like we had signs up all over the place that said like no running asbestos in the walls. There was rumors of like in the boys' change room of asbestos like crumbling out of shit. <laughs> I did a recent street view to look at Old Cow High, and I learned that they recently took out the stands at, around the track and the football field. And I'm like, oh, they took them out. But I'm also like, there was a giant holly bush growing out of those stands. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of um, doing a street view, so across the street from Cow High was a um was a gas station that our mom used to manage <laughs> behind Shit. that until until it got knocked down was the fucking crack house a literal <laughs> crack house and don't forget that this gas station had a laundromat attached to it and when it got oh, yeah, cold yeah. uh that became the only safe haven for homeless people <laughs> yep yeah, mom allowed people to shoot up in the bathroom as long as they did it. Like, they didn't get blood all over the place. Dispose of your needles. Like, there are children around as we're, like, running around. <laughs> Complete and utter goobers. <laughs> uh, like, it is a genuinely nice place. It's, just, it's a lovely so- little community, but, like, 
Yeah. It, like, it's the fact that you don't have to go far to see, like, where there's people probably on the poverty line. Yeah. Like, the way that... So, like, the thing about BC in general when it comes to, like, First Nations reservations, especially on Vancouver Island, is that the BC doesn't really fall into the treaty system like uh, the prairies do. So there's a lot of places where like the reservations were kind of informally set up and they still get treated like a lot of reservations that you see, which is not great, like woefully underfunded and all that sort of stuff. Um, so like just seeing the stark contrast between like the people who can own like these mansions, like there was a house not far from where we grew up when we were on um, Eagle View Place. It was the one house that had, like, its own... I think it was on Quamish and Lake, and it had its own indoor skating rink. Yeah, something crazy um, like that. Yeah, there were some crazy fucking rich people. Um, oh, yeah, if you ever hear about Salt Spring Island being where the hippies are, I I'm like, no, those are where the rich hippies are. They can afford to live there. The actual hippies live on Galliano Island. Um, yeah, like... It, yeah, just like that stark difference in class, which kind of leads, like, to get back into Michelle Remembers and, like, how this book came together. Like, knowing that Michelle Smith grew up at least middle, upper middle class in a very nice part of Victoria, and she had a wealthy grandfather, and she was also white and vaguely pretty, um... Like, getting back to her biography, like, after going to a private girl's school, a private Catholic girl's school, that, where she was a boarder in Vancouver. Also, like, her grandparents live in Vancouver. Why wasn't she just living with her grandparents? The fuck? Like, rich people. Anyway, um, she winds up going back to Vancouver Island, and she attends uh, the University of Victoria as a psych major in 1973. And that's where she starts... I guess her studies seem to have triggered some trauma responses. Um, and taking the psych classes kind of gave her language to describe what she was feeling. And maybe putting some stuff into perspective. Um, so, But it also triggered this depressive episode, so she winds up being referred to Dr. Pazder as a therapist and they work through some stuff and they also like liked each other it was pretty clear like they had a good rapport from early on so smith had also wanted to get married and have kids but because of her fairly traumatic childhood like not counting the whole alleged satanic cult shit i'm just talking about the regular traumas of your dad was an alcoholic wife beater and your mom died really young like normal fucking tragedies that happen to seemingly nice families um she smith seemed to have been very worried that she was going to repeat a lot of the stuff that happened to her uh that this is going to happen to her kids so she meets a guy named doug who was uh doug smith who was a surveyor from nova scotia and he is described as looking like a viking 
Surveyor from Nova Scotia looks like a Viking. Mm. Why would you leave him for for nerdy Dr. Pazder? Oh, God. Like, Absolute. God. That's the real tragedy here. <laughs> I want to know what the spouse's story is. What their perspective of this entire story is. Nobody has ever seemed to have gotten anything from it. So anyway. Do we know if he's Michelle, real? Well, they got married. And mm. apparently, Pazder attended their wedding. Oh, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> like, with high, like, it could have been perfectly innocent of, like, I'm just going to invite, you know, my psychiatrist to help me get through this dark period in my life. But then everything else that happened. Everything else, you know, all of this is just like a cautionary tale of conflict of interest. Of like, oh. listen, you have a job to do. And your job <laughs> is to make the brain worms not so bad. Yeah. like oh my god you fucking idiot asshole so anyway smith in between when she gets married and when she goes back to pastor smith apparently had three miscarriages with one that started her new round of sessions with pastor and this one required multiple dilations and curatage procedures and she was hemorrhaging hemorrhaging so a dilation and curatage procedure it's um basically you gotta dilate the cervix the doctor basically gets into the womb and scrapes out all the stuff that used to be the fetus and the um and the uterine lining and all that sort of stuff that creates the womb so that a baby can grow uh this is done both for um therapeutic reasons when it comes to miscarriages because um when you miscarry uh not everything comes out all at once this used to be a fairly common way women would die um is they would miscarry and then because stuff was still up in the womb it would basically cause sepsis um and it's also used for uh abortions fairly early on in um uh during the process during the pregnancy process which is why this podcast supports abortion freedom because this effect you know banning abortions affects everybody negatively um mm -hmm. anyway um so this is brought up during um the you're wrong about series on this book um because there's a lot of imagery used that for Sarah Marshall, it kind of ringed of the dilation of a C&D procedure that we won't go into too gritty a detail. I I recommend like listening to that five part series to get like a full understanding of what happened in the book. But yeah, like that happened and then um, Pazard was called in. Smith developed a rash and had these really intense nightmares. Um, 
and like there's just the weird absence of her sisters like she doesn't mention them at all in the book um doug hardly appears there's like one mention of pastor's own wife uh because pastor was married and had like three children who were teenagers (laughs) (laughs) so anyway this all leads to smith having a nervous breakdown in pastor's office where she claims to have witnessed 50 minutes uh, murders and screams for about 25 minutes. Pastor decides to tape the sessions going forward. Also, again, no mention of ever going to the police with any of the allegations. Um, and again, you're wrong about really goes into this. Same with conspirituality, where it's like during the sessions that are written down, there's no mention of it in the book, but there's a use of language that rings very similar to hypnotism. So going back to Pastor's time as a psych medical student, when at McGill, there's like no mention of him in any of his biographies and his obituary of him ever like doing classes on hypnotism or like getting any sort of training in hypnotism. So either he learned this on his own or he was very careful about not advertising that he could, that he knew how to hypnotize people. Which leads into a very good point that Sarah Marshall brought up, which is like, did he try this shit on other people? Like, hypnotized them, tried to ask leading questions to get them to come up with this really traumatizing bullshit, satanic panic shit to feed into his own religious beliefs. Like, there's just something fucking really creepy about Pastor. Like this fucking guy. She can't have been the first person that this happened to. Oh God. So, anyway, throughout the rest of the story, like there's, um, like the West Africa stuff comes up. There's stuff about like um, coming up with stuff about the satanic cult and it it reads just like michelle has these memories of her child she's like mixing up memories of her childhood and memories from the recent uh miscarriage stuff and like her own issues with her mom and her dad and probably like combining the figures of like the nuns at her school with the nurses and like how awful the bedside manner was at the time especially towards women and like this is the 70s so like it it was getting better about informing women about like what their bodies were doing but it was still like fucking awful and i would not be surprised that she was frequently like drugged to the gills during all of these like dnc procedures so you have all that going on you have this man who's basically invaded your life ruins your marriage because like they're spending all of this time together um i did some other digging uh so from like the uh was it it was the mail on sunday they did an expose back in the back in 1990 where they talked mostly to smith's dad 
And uh, one of the things that was brought up was that they couldn't reach either, uh, mostly Doug Smith for comment, but he was apparently very uh, bitter about the whole situation. Um, <laughs> and there was allegations. Um, there was another guy, Car uh, Coulihan, who was a private investigator and a uh, Wiccan himself. And he did a lot of investigation into the book. And he seems to have gotten his hands on their on uh, Smith and Pastor's divorce records. Um, Pastor tried to get an annulment first before he married Smith. Because he is a very conservative Catholic. And Catholics don't divorce. They really don't. <laughs> they really don't. Well, you're not supposed to, but like... Yeah, you're not supposed to, but like, let's be real. There's there's divorces going on amongst Catholic couples, but like, he was denied because of the obvious reasons of like you've been married to the same woman for years now, and you have teenage children. You can't say you didn't consummate this marriage, buddy. You can't say that the marriage was not correct. Like you're the type of per like during the book. Uh, Pastor reached out to his mother in Edmonton if she had a copy of like the Catholic calendar from 19... 1955. Which she did. Oh like, God. when I say serious conservative Catholics here, like, I, I checked with my boss, and because she was raised Catholic uh, down in Nesterhazy. And, like, the. Polish Catholics in Canada tend towards being more conservative. Um, a lot of that has to do with like Catholicism becoming very entrenched in um, Polish identity. And um, because Poland wound up being uh, brought under the Iron Curtain after World War II and part of the war, like the Soviet sphere of influence, uh, being Catholic was a way of fighting against uh, communism. Uh, so there's this whole entrenchment of all of that, and then like not not a lot of people in that community liked Vatican II. Um, also like the the visions that Smith has kind of get into some blood liable weirdness. There's a figure of a doctor who looks kind of like a stereotype of a Jewish person. Hmm. Which I think she got that from Pastor. Like, because um, at the time there was this whole battle over um, abortion rights here in Canada. Um, Canada didn't have them banned, but like, if you wanted an abortion, you had to go before a panel of doctors. And one of the few doctors who was openly giving out abortions, uh, basically, like, on demand was uh, Henry Morgenthaler, who was a Holocaust survivor. <laughs> so, uh, this is more coming from the, the Conspirituality podcast because one of the co-hosts is a um, Catholic from Toronto, and he comes more from like a, a German Catholic background and several generations into colonizing North America. Um, so, very different atmosphere, but He's like, I wish I could have 
gotten my hands on like translations of the newspaper of the Polish newspapers at the time to see what their opinions were of Henry Morgenthaler, um, which I doubt were good. Also, like an interesting thing, especially coming out of uh, the fallout of Vatican II, was the Bishop of Victoria at the time, which we have a roundabout connection to, right? Huh? Um, more in terms of geography than actual personal connection. But yeah. the Archbishop of Victoria at the time was a guy named Remy de Groot, and he was originally from Swan Lake, Manitoba, which mm. is, um, not to be confused with Swan River, which is way further north of where I'm talking about. Uh, Swan Lake is about an hour east of where our dad grew up, um, and it's part of, like, a cluster of communities that were mostly settled by, uh, Belgian and Quebecois settlers. Um, and that's mostly, like, south of Winnipeg. So, like, go south of Winnipeg, you're in, like, this mostly French and uh, Dutch-speaking area. And then you go, like, an hour west, and you're in Killarney, which is mostly, like, Scots-Irish and Mennonites. And you go an hour east towards, like, Steinbeck, and that's all Mennonites. Um... <laughs> So Remy DeRue was kind of an interesting figure because he wound up, um, uh, he wound up being reprimanded by the future Pope Benedict XVI for supporting Catholic priests getting married and ordaining women. <sighs> but like, because he was the main Catholic bishop in. Victoria, and if we're going with the theory that Lawrence Pastor was a traditional Catholic, like he has to get authority to do like the, the exorcism parts and getting uh, Michelle Smith baptized the Catholic uh, from some sort of authority, so you have to plug your nose and go with the pro Vatican II guy. <laughs> yeah. Remy DeRue's kind of interesting, and also like our connection is that uh, our grandpa used to. Our uh, paternal grandfather used to sell cattle up at the uh, First Nations Reservation over in Swan Lake. So, yeah. Just, like, it's a small world in Manitoba. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you're part of the Hereford Association, everybody knows everybody. So, yeah, there's, there's like, all of that going on. Um, according to the Divorce documents, Pastor and Smith used to disappear for long periods of time. So, uh, just like my pet theory is that this book came out because they needed to cover up for the affair. And that if any of the 24-hour news cycle people or, like, the daytime talk show hosts had, like, the fucking moral or the lack of morals that Vince McMahon has they would have brought on the exes to these interviews <sighs> it would have been so great this was a Maury situation <laughs> where you get yes. the, the, like like a Dr. Phil kind of thing where it's all exploitive <laughs> and fucked up and weird and it would have been it would, it would, have, it would have done Game Busters it would have been the greatest thing of all time 
it was exploited because like they went on to these shows to peddle their book and the whole satanic panic stuff and like Lauren's pastor was like an expert witness for the prosecution at the McMurrin preschool trial but like if he if they had been brought on not knowing that Doug Smith was gonna be there too <laughs> being like you stole my wife Oh. <laughs> Should have been a television executive back in the day. Oh, it would have yeah. been so great. Like, just call up Doug Smith and be like, okay, what's your price to come down to Los Angeles? I Give me a number. We'll make it work. Yeah. We'll pay for everything. And you can okay. throw a chair at Larry, at Larry Pazder. You, you get one free punch. That we'll pay for it, whatever whatever the cost, we'll pay for it. Yeah, because <laughs> whatever whatever happens, the ratings would go through the fucking roof. Yeah. <laughs> Part of me is remembering that one episode of uh, George and Tammy that we watched, where George just George Jones <laughs> rockets into that guy's house. <laughs> Holy <laughs> got punched out by George Jones. <laughs> oh man, Jesus! Uh, yeah, God. Like if that had come, I am surprised no journalist just checking out the story ever approached the exes and were like, "Hey, what's your side of the story?" Or like went to. Michelle's sisters and been like hey what was your sister like what what What, was her damage man (laughs) are you just as fucked up no we're like we're sad our mom died and our dad is a fucking asshole but we're fucking well adjusted god damn but yeah, like they managed to release this fucking poison on the world and we're dealing with another satanic panic because yeah, we're recording this in the wake of Sam Smith <laughs> at the Grammys. <laughs> and then oh, what was the other thing? The Rihanna at at the Super at Bowl. the Super Bowl. Rihanna just wears a lot of red. Is red bad again? Can we not wear? Well, I guess. Like the the only reason you probably shouldn't be wearing red around Regina is because of the gangs out there and how uh, some some of them don't like it when you wear red. Which gangs are we talking about? Are we talking about the Rough Rider cult? Uh, no, no. we're we're oh. talking about the real ass gangs in okay. Regina. The ones in North Central. Okay. Yeah. Noted. I live in a nice area. <laughs> and I'm gonna stay down here. Um, yeah. Just, oh my god, this whole thing. And I have a whole section about potlatches, because, like, the, the potlatch revival happened in the 70s, too. I don't know, maybe that'll be bonus content where we talk about potlatches. Yeah, that might be a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, my whole my whole thing is like it was never brought up in the book, but like 
the potlatch ceremony that the First Nations on the West Coast do, especially like Coast Salish, Haida, uh, and such, they have this whole like feast ceremonies called potlatches that were banned uh, in the Indian starting in the Indian Act in the 1880s and uh, the ban was lifted in 1991 when it was found to be unenforceable but the actual revival of potlatches happened in the 1970s and they're fucking cool go look up a potlatch like you get to see a transforming mask and oh god those things are awesome mm. and my whole reason for bringing them up is like I bet Lawrence Pastor was not happy about that oh probably not no Lawrence Pastor would never be invited to like a cool potlatch ever. Anyway, uh, never. <laughs> so yeah, that's episode one of this, where we talk about some of the stuff in the book that kind of gets glossed over, surprisingly. And I'm like, no, l- let's talk about the whole colonial colonial tone that one Larry Pastor takes when he talks about West Africa. Fucking Christ. Um, oh, yeah, I completely forgot about the whole, like, connection to Cuba, too. Oh, shit, Cuba. Y- yeah. Well, this is more to do with the whole uh, ECPI uh, society, because that got brought over um, during the transatlantic slave trade to Cuba and Brazil, and the biggest appearance of it is in uh, Brazil, or not Brazil, Cuba, uh, with the... Abacua, or the Yanigissimo. Um, so, yeah, they're kind of like a Masonic society. They dress up as um, in costumes that are called Diab- Diablitos. Um, they were well known to the general populace of Cuba through their participation in the Carnival of the Day of the Three Kings uh, when they would dance around the street in ceremonial outfits, uh, usually in a multicolored checkerboard outfit. Uh, they acted as a mutual aid society. They did the whole secret oaths and rituals um, that they called uh, plantes. They were very theatrical. There was dramas associated. And they got really into the music. Uh, their music was really important. And it wound up influencing uh, the evolution of Cuban music, especially rumba. And they also became a very popular anti-colonial force uh, because they acted as an anti-colonial mutual aid society and I guess they were left pretty much untouched by the Castro regime. Uh, there's... Uh, yeah, there was some neat art I, I'd seen from a Cuban artist about uh, the... about these guys. And yeah. So, again, this is just to like... Someday in the future, we're going to do a whole thing about it the demonization of Af- of African diaspora religions. Because fuck that. Mm. Colonialism sucks, and it feeds into the, the satanic panic. So anyway, next time, uh, we're gonna talk about some of the books that led up to Michelle Remembers, and uh, you got some opinions on Ted Turner. <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> Ted Turner just didn't he also like buy Warner Bros for a while? Uh yeah. Uh yeah.
Yeah, TBS, uh, Turner Broadcasting has uh, since merged with Time Warner, so. Yeah. 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 There's a reason why the DC movies suck. Maybe James Gunn can save them. Anyway, um, until next time, uh, Ryan, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Vagabond Haunted on Twitter. If that's still alive, we'll never know. Uh, and through there, you can find me pretty much everywhere else. Yeah. Um, you can find me at lindsaym476 on Twitter. Um, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Uh, you can follow the link tree to all of our other social media. You know what? We should probably get on to making a Tumblr account for this podcast. Probably. It like cockroaches shall, shall survive the end of the end of human civilization. That seems. Um, we are also members of the Corner Podcast Network, which has a Discord server. Just follow the link at CornerPodNet on Twitter. Uh, you can also email us at ytdadnd at gmail.com or you can send us your comments, critiques, questions, and stories. Uh, you can also send us a friendship promo. Uh, be it an audio clip or proof for us to read. Our cover art is by Queen Ethelred, and our music is by Metallica. I am recording from Treaty 4 Territory, the traditional lands of the Cree, Sultul, and Assiniboine, and homeland of the Métis. And I am recording on the unceded territory of the Claylay Tenay. So, until next time, um, praise God! Hail Satan! <laughs>